Believe it or not, there are a couple of things that both I and today's author share. We recently completed a two-week improvisational workshop entitled Terra Incognita, which was led by himself and performance legend Andrew Morrish. We also have the same agent. We also share a love for fruit and Shakespeare. Humphrey Bauer is an actor, writer, teacher and director. Really, he is an award-winning all-rounder artist with the WA Equity Guild Award for Best New Play, a couple of Blue Room Theatre Awards and a Helpman Award for Best Supporting Actor. However, it was in 2014 when the name Humphrey Bauer was made known, was made known to me with the revamping of with his revamping of Wish, a stage adaptation from author Peter Goldworthy's 1995 novel. And then, a brilliant performance in the Black Swan State Theatre Company's production of Laughter on the 23rd Floor, which, in my opinion, was the brightest light on Perth's main stage that year. Basically, Humphrey Bauer has done a lot. He has a theatrical career that spans over countries, cities and climates. Welcome, Humphrey. Good to be here. <laughs> As I was speaking to um, Humphrey, there's, I would like, I really encourage everyone to Google Humphrey Bauer Daily Review. Humphrey wrote this very interesting article that started a blog because, believe it or not, Humphrey is not originally from Perth. He is from Melbourne. Correct. So, Humphrey, in 2011, um, 2011 in 2001, you travelled from Melbourne to Perth. What brought you to Perth? Why are you here? Good question. That's the question everyone asks themselves who lives in Perth, I reckon. Why am I here? What am I doing? I've got a feeling it's a long time since I read that blog post, but I seem to remember investigating that very question, actually. Who are we and why are we here? In my case, I came to Perth for personal reasons. Post-separation, two kids and their mum moved here. And so I moved from Melbourne to Perth to continue being their dad to be close to them yeah. so that's the simple answer for you what is the main difference between melbourne and perth well i don't know that i can isolate one main difference i mean the first thing that springs to mind is that perth is a long way away from any other big city mm. possibly it's the most isolated or one of the most isolated cities on the planet actually mm. and even in the age of the internet and connectivity i think that sense of isolation or remoteness still exists, even if it's imaginary, in the minds of people who live here, which has a lot of positive features. You know, there's a sense of being on the frontier here, mm. and but it is a city, so it has enough of a population and enough, you know, resources that, you know, you can do stuff and be part of a large community. Whereas I feel in Melbourne... I mean, Melbourne is a much bigger city. Yeah. It's also closer to Sydney and then Adelaide and Brisbane. It's, it's part of that East Coast nexus. And it feels, it feels closer to Europe, actually, I think, culturally and, you know, not necessarily geographically, but, but, but it, feels, it, it, it feels closer geographically, actually. Mm. Melbourne in particular, I think, feels, you know, like a European city. Mm. I mean, increasingly, it also feels like an Asian city, but... The Melbourne I grew up in was very much a European city and before that, you know, an Anglo-Celtic city. Mm. Perth to me feels... When I moved to Perth and I actually decided to drive all the way here after I'd packed up and sold the house, 
just so that I could actually experience that journey and that sense of real distance. I felt like I was driving to Australia. Mm. And again, that might have been an imaginary feeling, but even, you know, something about the, the, the scale of the journey and the landscape. But yeah, I felt like I was, you know, particularly once I hit the desert and then, you know, you know drove along the bottom edge of the Nullarbor and, you know, along the bight. And then, uh, you know, I came up through the, the big forests. I, I took, took the route down south. So I came, came around Esperance and Albany and I camped along the way and came up through those giant forests. And, you know, I really felt like I was not coming home, but I was finally leaving this kind of European enclave and going to Australia. And I do still feel that in a way about Perth. I feel like it's, I feel closer to the fault lines of Australia, you know, cultural fault lines, racial fault lines. I mean, there's a much bigger Aboriginal presence mm. in Perth. In Melbourne, it's, you know, it's very specific. It's really Gertrude Street and Fitzroy and St Kilda are kind of the two places. We don't, in Melbourne, you don't even really have a red fern. There isn't, a, mm. and there isn't an inner city, you know, Aboriginal neighbourhood in the same way. Uh, but in Perth, I, f- I feel that presence much more. I mean, there's, a, there's an Aboriginal theatre company, yeah. which, you know, I worked with not long after I moved here. So I felt like I was encountering that, you know, that aspect of Australia. The landscape feels much more present. Mm. I mean, in Melbourne, of course, there's the river and there's, you know, parkland and there's, you know, there's Victoria is, is easily accessible. But you feel like you're in the middle of a much more urban environment. I feel like in Perth, you know, you can see the hills, the Darling Ranges. Yeah, There's yeah. that sense of the desert beyond them and then the interior beyond that. And the presence of the Indian Ocean the other way feels yeah. very, very present, in a, which is not the case in Melbourne. I mean, Port Phillip Bay is, is, a, is a different story. And even thinking of the rivers, I mean, the Yarra is really just like a creek <laughs> where, where, you know, the Swan is this huge expanse of water. And, I mean, Perth, the way of life here is much more oriented towards being outdoors because of the weather, mm. you know, the huge skies. So, yeah, I would say a huge difference is, is that, that sense of landscape as well. And, you know, I think, I mean, Perth is a big mining town. Its economy mm. rises and falls essentially in relation to the mining industry. In the time that I've been here, there's been, you know, a boom and a recession. And that affects the cultural landscape and the social and economic landscape and political landscape as well, much more directly than, than in Melbourne. So again, I feel like culturally, the connection between culture and the arts and the economy and the landscape is a little more palpable or, or a little more immediate. Mm. In, in Melbourne, I think it, it feels a lot more mediated. You know, the, Again, I come back to this, this, this sense of being what it means to live not just here in Perth, but what it means to live in Australia, mm. feels like a much bigger question here than in a city like Melbourne or I've never lived in Sydney, I've worked in Sydney, but they feel more more like metropolises that are connected, particularly Sydney, with yeah. other metropolises around the world. Yeah. In the case of Sydney, you know, it feels much more directly connected with, with America and um, you know, Europe and the UK, particularly America, I think. So, yeah... I mean, that's just for starters. (laughs) I totally agree, because I remember Melbourne, I I think, is one of those funny places. Because I remember my friend, um, I I had a meeting the other day with a couple of friends, and hopefully we're going to make a short film of of sorts. And I remember my friend Sam, he was was talking about how Melbourne, it's quite a square block. He was talking about, you know, he was talking about how, in relation to, because we've got Beaufort Street, Mm. 
and you're saying like in Melbourne, you've got basically like four Beaufort streets um, in Melbourne, like Ligon Street and it's like cafe strips and the, you've got like, I feel like everything in Melbourne has got, you've got four times of Beaufort Street and you've got four times of this. I feel like it's much more condenser and a place that I have to visit and experience because mm. I've never, never been to Melbourne. Mm. So I find, mm. I find this very interesting and a lot of people have said, yeah, it's very European, the food is wonderful. Mm. Mm. And you have that ma mass immigration. Perth did have a little bit of mass immigration of like Italian immigrants and mm. Greeks and like in relation to like Fremantle and Melbourne. Mm. But yes, sorry, I'm, I'm digressing now. Yeah, no, but it's true. I mean, Melbourne much more, there's a sense of multiple villages mm. where in Perth there are fewer villages <laughs> like <laughs> Northbridge or, you know, Mount Lawley or, uh, you know, if I think of the kind of the cultural hubs in Melbourne, it's, you know, there are a lot more and they're interconnected. And I, and I think it's a more interior, the mentality is more interior because of the weather, but also because yeah. of that influence of, of, of European culture, particularly Northern European culture. Although, yeah, it's probably less Northern European than Southern European immigration. But, but yeah, I feel like um, that kind of interior, I mean, there's a huge, the, you know, Melbourne and Sydney, but I think Melbourne particularly, Jewish immigration, mm. particularly after the Second World War, there was a huge influx and a huge influence uh, of particularly Central European culture mm. on Melbourne. I mean, my father came from that culture. He was an Austrian Jew who emigrated from Vienna in 1939 and was part of a network of, you know, of, you know, upper middle class, highly educated Jewish refugees yeah. who, who settled in Melbourne and became doctors and lawyers mm. and artists and patrons and, and musicians and scientists and academics and... That was the kind of milieu that I grew up in, yeah. so I feel very, very shaped by, by that particular demographic, within within the context of Melbourne, which I think has a much bigger influence on Melbourne than, you know, th that demographic in Perth is a lot smaller. And I'm now reminded of uh, one of our greatest, I think, figures in Australian history of the general Sir John Monash. Yeah. A fascinating. Fascinating. Figure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And a, and a, yeah. Because he's from Melbourne too, isn't he? And. I, I'm not sure if Monash was from Melbourne. That sounds right. It, it probably is right because Monash University is named after him. But certainly, yeah, he's he's the only significant. I'm sure there were others. Uh, Jewish uh, Australian commander, yeah, um, military commander, and very interesting, yeah. very interesting man too. Yeah, because <laughs> I yeah, I find he's a wonderful. I felt to me like it's funny how like now as me and Humphrey are speaking, you know, there's a lot of talk of potentially another third world war with North Korea and Trump and what have you and, and sort of a lot of issues in in the Pacific but I find that John Monash was one of the I don't know like in reading in various books like I felt like he really put like Australian commanders like Australia's ability to fight in battles in high regard mm. like I think some books refer to him some historians refer to him as like the best general in World War One right because of his, yes, I don't know if people want to listen to history, because of his ability to combine aircraft, infantry and tanks. Right. And I think, and I, I find that very interesting how a person who's got like, and this is coming back to the arts, using new technologies and all together mm. in a very strategic way of thinking, I find that absolutely inspirational mm. and fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I, I don't know as much about Monash as you, but I, I wonder how much of that is a reflection of, of uh, an immigrant mentality, actually, a mm. resourcefulness, 
um, and a, a kind of, you know, ability to think creatively given whatever is available, I don't know, as opposed to more kind of conventional ways of thinking. Where do you see Perth? Oh my God, this is a really, I have to asterisk this and mention and put a little blurb here saying that I was reading this question today and I was thinking, I don't think this makes much sense (laughs) as my speech patterns do. Where do you see Perth in relation to its art industry? So is there a noticeable change from 2001, 2010 and 2017? You mean the arts industry as a whole, as in all the art forms? Golly, that's a big question. I mean, yes, I think there's been change. I mean, when I arrived here, I can probably speak more about the theatre industry Mm. or theatre scene than than visual arts or music or, you know, I can speak more more easily probably about about, about theatre and to some extent dance. I feel like when I arrived, look, there's more continuity than change, actually. There was a sense that, and again, this is related to the broader political and economic and social environment that in the in the that before I arrived I arrived and the scene felt very traumatized it felt tribalized and traumatized there wasn't a lot of money around and that's still the case mm. there was this sense that there had been largesse from the Burke the corrupt WA Inc. Yeah, Labor government that there'd been a lot of money splashing around <laughs> that there had been I think there was briefly a state theatre company, the WA yes. State Theatre Company, yes. yep. um, that had that had briefly existed and had folded. There was, you know, there were incumbents at the helm of Black Swan, as it was then. It was not a state theatre company, and Perth Theatre Company, which still existed back then, mm. and Deck Chair and Yuri Yarkin, and they'd all been there. Particularly the the, the Black Swan and Deck Chair. Artistic directors had been there for a long time. They'd both been there for about 10 years or, or longer even, I think. Yeah, it felt very tribalised. It felt very sort of endangered and threatened. It felt like there was competition for scarce resources. I mean, that's still the case to an even greater degree now. Although it's become more polarised. I mean, companies like Deck Chair and Perth Theatre Company have folded. They've gone. They've mm. lost their funding and they, they disappeared. So in some ways it feels like the ecosystem is even more endangered than it was before. You could argue that there's, you know, less diversity. Black Swan has become a state theatre company, so that's become, you know, the top end of town. That's yeah. become more like, you know, a generic state theatre company. Yeah. Which, I mean, of course there are differences between Black Swan and Melbourne Theatre Company and Queensland, now Queensland Theatre. They're all trying to rebrand themselves in different mm. ways. But there's a, there's a, there's a greater distance between that and, you know, essentially the independent fringe scene, which, when I arrived, was centred on the Blue Room. Mm. Um, but there was also Recobites Hall, which as which was around the corner, which was another centre of independent theatre activity and which has been closed down for many years now, although there's talk of it reopening as a performance venue, right. uh, again, which is great. So, in some ways, you know, Perth was already in the situation that then I feel like you know, Melbourne and Sydney and everywhere else started to enter into that sort of endangered feeling. Look, I think that was a national thing, actually. I think in the 90s, you know, the 80s, everyone looks back on the 80s as being this great time. (laughs) I think that lasted into the 90s for Perth. And then, you know, into the 2000s, there was a, you know, feeling of everything being kind of, kind of a year zero Mm. feeling. And then everything kind of started again. What can I say beyond that in terms of change and continuity? 
I mean, so yeah, Black Swan has become a state theatre company, a major performing arts organisation. Mm-hmm. The, the State Theatre Centre has been built and opened and that's changed things. The Blue Room has expanded massively, mm-hmm. not in terms of its venues, but I mean, the building, you know, has been, has expanded and, you know, it's kind of, audiences have expanded. Mm. So I think that sense of the cultural centre being a cultural centre, that sense of a hub mm. is stronger now than it was when I first arrived in 2001. Supi Theatre Centre, on the other hand, was a very much part of the scene mm. back then. I mean, actually, I think Black Swan were based there at Subi right. Theatre Centre when I arrived. Um, now they're in the State Theatre Centre. So, I mean, yeah, Subi felt more like another a hub. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that quite so much now, mm. although Yuri Arkin are now resident there. Yeah, it's Black Swan and Barking Gecko were both resident there when I arrived. That's slightly, you know, that's changed. I mean, the State Theatre Company didn't exist. The, the State yeah. Theatre Centre, I should say, didn't exist. Um, the other thing was Perth Theatre Company, when I arrived, was resident at the, pl- the Playhouse. Yes. Which has been demolished <laughs> so that's a huge loss in terms of an actual venue yeah so yeah i would say there's less diversity in that kind of medium range level you know there was no there it was all small to medium then but there was more i mean yuri Arkin had its own theater in in oh. the cbd um in murray street and that's I, I don't even know what's happened to that building but they're no longer there so that was another you know oh, wow. center so there was there, there was more of a sense of diversity and, and there was no state theatre company, which I actually thought, I quite liked that in some yeah. ways. It meant there was no, you know, top of the tree or single point of focus that everyone was aspiring to. Yeah. It was a kind of, you know, a more kind of eclectic collection of, of niche companies that were either identified by their audience, in the case of, say, Barking Gecko or Yuri Arkin, mm. or they were really reflecting the personalities of the artistic directors, which was the case for Black Swan and um, Perth Theatre Company. And Andrew Ross at Black Swan had a very particular view, an idea about Western Australian theatre, actually, Mm. which was very interesting, and and that really defined that company, including uh, quite a lot of... I mean, Yuri Arkin came out of that. Mm. You know, he he fostered Aboriginal theatre in in Perth, initially through Black Swan. Mm. Um, Jack Davis... Plus, yeah. you know, were, were first performed here, and you know that, that's a strong tradition here. And in Perth Theatre Company, um, it was Alan Beecher who had his own kind of approach to theatre as a director, which the you know the company was an expression of that. So now I would say the companies are less reflective of. Um, I have to be careful here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, th- th- there's more of a sense of a hierarchy, Yeah, I have to say, of kind of Black Swan at the top and sort of then kind of Barking Gecko and Yuri Arkin, the kind yeah. of niche companies. Perth Theatre Company's gone, Deck Chair is gone. I mean, Deck Chair had a strong tradition of kind of yeah. community theatre and local playwriting and to some extent political theatre. Mm. And I mean, that company's gone now. And then, so then now there's still the, you know, there's a very, I think, very healthy independent scene centred on the Blue Room, which I think is exceptional. I mean, I, I actually think, I mean, sure, in Melbourne you've got La Mama, mm. and then you've got other venues like like Arts House in North Melbourne or 45 Downstairs or, um, you know, Theatre Works. But La Mama is really, actually, I think, has always been the hub of Melbourne independent mm. theatre. 
but that's a tiny venue that only seats about 40 people. Mm. Whereas the Blue Room, I think is quite unique, you know, mm. has a unique role. It's a, it's a fantastic, I mean, that's where I gravitated when I first moved to Perth yeah. and where I still gravitate as a, as a theatre maker. And, you know, it's the theatre I go to most often frankly, yeah. to see interesting work. And the general public go there too, mm. you know, because it's close to the station and because it's got a great bar and a great vibe and because of Perth Fringe. I mean, that's another huge change in the cultural yeah. scene. The arrival of Perth Fringe, which started about four or five years ago now, really changed things during that, particularly those summer months, and meant there was a kind of, again, I think a connection between theatre and performance and the general public, mm. and particularly more kind of independent theatre and the general public, even though a lot of the fringe, of course, is burlesque and comedy, yeah. and you know, inevitably. But I think that's, you know, that's that's changed things, and I think it has a flow-on effect. It certainly changed things for the Blue Room, because mm. the Blue Room hosts a curated season during the fringe, and that's Some actually months, the most yeah. successful, you know, a huge amount of income, box office income for the Blue Room, mm. comes from those fringe seasons. Um, both people paying to see it and of course at the bar so yeah that's been a big change I think the, the fringe and, and Art Rage was part of that too yeah uh, yeah at the moment I've run out of things to say <laughs> in response to that question a couple of things that like for me there is that a little bit of a fear that like talking to various people during this you know this, the Perth and Chronicle series there has been a fear for me that the Perth Fringe World Festival will become the comedy circuit mm. and sort of theatre and new works will sort of get, mm. you know, pushed down slightly. Mm. And, mm. and I think it's, I think it is somewhat a good balance, but obviously I know from last year's Fringe, there was far more comedy acts. Mm. Mm. I'm trying to remember, was a, I think there was like, in terms of like the guide, I think 30 pages were dedicated to comedy. Yeah. Look, I think that's the case at Fringe festivals everywhere. I mean, certainly I think, you know, that's the case in Adelaide and in, in Edinburgh that, you know, inevitably because they have a popular base and because, you know, national, international, tourable shows are going to be, you know, there's going to be a tendency towards comedy or burlesque, mm. cabaret, that kind of thing, because people looking for, a, you know, a fun night out at the mm. fringe, you know, are going to gravitate towards that kind of work. So I think that that is going to happen as the fringe continues to grow. At the same time, I think I think the Blue Room and Pika in particular, yeah. and potentially other venues, have a, are going to continue to be the preserve of of more kind of what I would call fringe, you know, experimental avant-garde theatre and performance, and that and that there'll be a spillover because people are out and about going to yes. see stuff in the Spiegel tents and yeah. whatever that they'll go to the Blue Room as well because it's got a great bar and the same with Pika. Yeah. So I think those curated seasons at those venues in particular are going are gonna to maintain, you know, they're going to be a kind of a, a preserve <laughs> for, for theatre and performance that's not just comedy and burlesque. Yeah. Changing gear, what have you learnt from teaching young artists? Well, this is a new thing for me. I mean, I started teaching sessionally at WAPA last year so I'm a, I'm a year and a half into it um, and I'm only a sessional teacher so um, I'm very much an emerging teacher I mm. would say but I've learned an enormous amount I mean 
I don't think I could have taught until this point. I mean, I'm in my early 50s now and, and so, you know, I'm reassessing why I'm here and what I'm doing and, you know, what I have to offer and what I still need to learn. And in fact, this is a roundabout way of answering your question, but I, I got a creative development fellowship three years ago now in 2015, no, two years ago, and went off for, from, from the Department of Culture and the Arts. And I went off for five months and I did a lot of training that I'd never done because I didn't train myself formally. I didn't go to drama school. Um, I came up through Melbourne, you know, university and fringe theatre and then, you know, just went into, continued working between independent and mainstream ever since. So I learnt, you know, from mentors and peers and, you know, directors and other actors and, you know, some workshops, but Mm. not, I didn't do a formal degree in theatre, in Mm. acting or directing or writing or any of those things. So... When I, when I kind of reached my early 50s, I felt like I was ready to learn. <laughs> I was old enough to learn. And I, so I went on this program and I, it was like a bucket list of, you know, I worked with Kristen Linklater in Orkney doing voice and Shakespeare classes. And yeah. I worked with Philippe Goyer in, in um, I mean, when I say worked with, that sounds a bit pretentious. I did, I did a summer school with Philippe Goyer over a month, um, which lots of, lots of younger artists do in France, um, doing clowning and leisure. And, you know, I did other workshops in, in Europe and the States, actually, and also saw a lot of theatre. But it was kind of feeling like I needed to take a break from making work and performing and actually do some some training. Yeah. And as it happened, when I came back from that in the second half of 2015, I was invited by Glenda Linscott, who was head of, who is head mm. of acting now, at, at, well, has been for a couple of years now yeah. at WAPA, to share some of her workload as a teacher. So it felt like I'd never done it before and I was terrified because I felt like I don't know what I've got to teach and I don't know if I can teach because, you know, I haven't been to drama school myself, but I felt like I had something to share or I was convinced by her and other people that I had something to share in terms of experience. Mm. And I guess to some extent I felt like, well, I've come fresh from these recent training experiences. So perhaps some of that will be able to flow through. And so to answer your question most directly, I've, from teaching, I am learning firstly what it is that I know but didn't know that I knew. Um, the kind of, to reverse Donald Rumsfeld's, the, the unknown knowns. <laughs> there were a lot of unknown knowns that I had that I, I'm still discovering yeah. You know, it's like a platonic reminiscence. I'm kind of realizing, oh, I actually know, you know, the slave knows about the isosceles, <laughs> you know, about the triangle. I, I actually do, at least in my body and emotionally, there's stuff that I can share. Mm. And by sharing it or transmitting it in some way, I'm becoming conscious of what it is. You know, it's a bit like being in therapy, I suppose. <laughs> so I'm learning what I know by teaching. And then, of course, I'm learning from students because I'm getting, well, I'm not only learning, but I'm getting their energy, their appetite. Some of the things that start to change when you get older, you know, your kind of ambition, motivation, energy, appetite for performing, for, you know, learning, for making theatre. I'm getting that from them. Mm. And... And I'm getting something from inside myself that I didn't know, which is being reflected back to me. Not always. I mean, sometimes, you know, there are huge challenges and, you know, I'm not always sure what I'm doing. 
with them. I very much respond to the people who are there, who I'm working with. Um, and sometimes they're like, well, what are you doing? Where's all this going? And I'm like, well, I'm really just following you. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm responding to what you're bringing to the class. But yeah, I'm getting an opportunity to rediscover and, and expand on skills and knowledge that, you know, that I didn't, I either didn't know I had before or didn't have before, mm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having to, to dig deep. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of rediscovering what theatre and performance mean to me mm. through, through teaching. Mm. It's funny cause I like, so sort of trying my best to segue into these couple of questions mm. For me, see, it's funny because, you know, spending time, for me it was a great pleasure spending time with Humphrey and Andrew Morris and many, many wonderful other artists. And we did a two-week improvisational workshop uh, with Strut Dance at the State Theatre Centre. And it was wonderful because I'd eavesdrop on Humphrey <laughs> chatting. And it's very interesting how, and, and what you just said just a couple of seconds ago, like, I feel for me there's, like... I really love Shakespeare and I have not had any training at all whatsoever to deal with Shakespeare. It's always been sort of self-taught, watching YouTube videos, you know, watching um, those oh, those bloody, um, I shouldn't say, you know, those bloody things, those wonderful um, with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Oh, oh, what classes or workshops? Yeah, those classes, or... yeah, they did in the 70s with the, uh, oh. Rick, uh, Barton, John, John Barton, Barton, John Barton, John Barton, John Barton, Shakespeare. playing Shakespeare. Yeah. Like, I've watched all them. And, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, that's and a great series. Yeah. Brilliant series mm. for not just mm. um, tackling It was John Barton and a group of RSC actors, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, and you had like a young Patrick Stewart, you know, a young Ian McKellen, that's David right. Chusse, like that's all these right. young faces. And then you'd yeah. get like these old, these old big actors like... Um, Donald, uh, Donald Sindon. Donald Sindon, yeah. Who I love, and you know. Yeah, he, he, his fruity voice, yeah. <laughs> fruity voice, and, and, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, I actually saw Donald Sindon. No. Playing, in blackface, playing Othello. Oh. In the early 80s. <laughs> yeah. I think that was the last time I saw, uh, and possibly the last time there was a blackface <laughs> A white actor blacking up to play a fellow, and it was Donald Sindon speaking like this. Desdemona. I mean, it's actually great. I, I, I mean, the other one I think of is the Lawrence Lawrence Olivier yeah, film, Lawrence, yeah. which is extraordinary because not only does he, you know, black up, yeah. but he actually really puts on this kind of, uh, you know, he deepened his voice yeah. artificially and. And even the way he moves and rolls his eyes, it's it's almost like a black and white minstrel show. I mean, yeah. it's quite it's it's quite provocative, actually. I don't know that it was intended that way, but it almost comes across as a kind of bizarre parody of a white man playing a black man, which yeah. is absolutely crazy. And that oh, that whole argument, um, like in terms of, like people should YouTube yeah Lawrence Olivier doing Othello because I thought one that's a quite a striking performance mm. in today's context. Mm. I'm like, oh, that's mm. quite brave. And, mm. and listening to, um, you know, Simon Callow, who knew Lawrence Olivier a little bit, and he mm. said apparently Lawrence Olivier went into the gym. He, mm. he really, seriously, like, mm. I feel like on his part, he wasn't trying to mock or do oh, a mi- mitchell, but I think like seriously, like an actor, actor, mm. he tried to be this, 
know, West Indies, African, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, Othello, trying to be authentic as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's fascinating. And now you think of, I mean, I reckon we're going to be having similar conversations or already mm. that similar discussions are happening around, for example, transgendered characters being uh, played yeah. by people who are not transgendered. Yeah. And, you know, people studying mannerisms or dressing up or whatever. Mm. And the politics of that. Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely fascinating. But the, the Olivier performance is a document. Yeah, you mentioned Donald Cinder, yeah. which was... And I remember actually yeah. seeing that and feeling like... I mean, I was only probably in my late teens, early 20s. And, you know, a lot of these discussions were yet to be had. Yeah. But I remember feeling like, oh, this is weird. Like, this, is, <laughs> this feels really weird just watching this guy with this fruity voice yeah. flacked up doing this kind of performance. Um, yeah. God, that must... Oh, I'm, see, that's why I wish we were like a time-travelling machine because I'd love to see Donald Sinden and I remember there was this infamous production of Sir John Gilgood doing Othello. Right. With, I think you got the film director, Frank... Safarelli, the Italian director, and it was a, a god-awful production. Like, right. John Gilgood, like, it, it apparently went on for four hours, yeah. the set fell, his beard came off during, you know, when he killed, you know, Desdemona, you right. know, and, you know, so John Gilgood. His makeup started running <laughs> off because he was sweating. <laughs> I, I feel like, actually, I saw another. There was a production that came to Australia when I was at school hmm. of Othello with Keith Michelle. Uh, who was famous for being playing Henry VIII in a 70s TV series called yeah. The Sixth Wives of Henry VIII. And I'm pretty sure it was Keith Michelle playing Othello. Similarly kind of fruity. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, do you have a relationship with the works of William Shakespeare? Everyone has a relationship with the works of William Shakespeare. I mean, I, I love the title of the book, even though I don't necessarily agree with it. Shakespeare and the Invention of the Human, which is a, oh. a book by um, Harold Bloom, the American critic. And Bloom provocatively argues that Shakespeare with certain characters like Hamlet uh, and Falstaff, those are the two in particular, but I think others, not only sort of broadened the representation of what it meant to be human on stage, but actually invented <laughs> that we learnt how to be human <laughs> in the way that we are because of his, he imagined these characters, which is, a, you know, obviously a provocation, but it's a, it's yeah. a fascinating idea. But I do actually think that we, we all have a relationship with Shakespeare. I mean, the language has a relationship. Our language has a relationship with Shakespeare. Let's leave aside psychology. Yeah or what it is to be human, whatever that phrase even means. But, I mean, so much of our language... I mean, Shakespeare coined so many expressions yeah. that we now use um, that, you know, along with the King James Bible, it's, you know, yeah. the works of Shakespeare really are, you know, the, the, the most influential, you know, body of literature by what, you know, that, that, that's, that's affected how we speak and mm. therefore how we think. And, you know, those stories uh, affect us. I think everyone, even if you've never seen a play by Shakespeare, I think we all have an unconscious relationship with Shakespeare, much as we do actually with Greek theatre and with the Bible, you know, and mm. with our culture. When we all have a relationship with... I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a, a religious person myself, I'm not a Christian, but I have a relationship with Christianity because mm. it's had such an enormous impact 
called Judeo-Christianity, mm. you know, Judaism and Christianity, because they, it's had such an enormous impact on the culture I live in. Mm-hmm. And so, and Shakespeare is, a, is a, a cornerstone of that culture. So that's an easy answer. Mm. My personal relationship with Shakespeare was originally probably more, I mean, the first, I remember just feeling like I wanted to act at school after seeing a school play production of King Lear with, you know, 16-year-old in it. And particularly there was a a schoolboy actor at my school who played King Lear with a kind of long white wig on and a glued-on beard. (laughs) And his performance had such an impact on me, especially when he carried the body of Cordelia on stage at the end and, you know, calling out howl, 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 howl that his performance and that experience, I'd never seen the play. You know, I, I, I read the play, then I read as much of Shakespeare as I could. So that led to, first of all, becoming fascinated with Shakespeare and, you know, studying it at school and then going on to study it at university. So then my relationship with Shakespeare became more kind of that of a, of a you know, more academic in some ways as literature, but also... You know, I saw as much Shakespeare as I could on stage, but you know, already at that same school, there was a quad. This was Melbourne Grammar, so it was a you know a privileged boys' mm. private school, and there was a Bluestone quad, and we did. There was a Shakespeare every year, so I think the following year I played King Duncan in a production of Macbeth. <laughs> um, I was very short in those days, so I was a very short King Duncan, but I also had a big glued-on white beard. <laughs> and then the following year, I was Oberon in a Midsummer Night's Dream. And, you know, that was really where I got the bug of yeah. performing in theatre. Then when I went to I went to Melbourne University and I directed a production of Hamlet wow. at the Guild Theatre at Melbourne University uh, and was obsessed with the play, as, you know, many yeah. Yeah, people are, probably possibly more than any other Shakespeare play. In fact, I wanted to play Hamlet and direct it, but I was talked out of that <laughs> act, of, act of hubris. Um, but I did direct it. You know, when I was all of 17 or 18 years old. And then I went to Oxford University and studied English language and literature. And, you know, was very fortunate to have that opportunity. Uh, And not only did I study Shakespeare with Anne Barton, actually. John Barton's... um, Pretty sure Anne Barton was John Barton's wife. I was going to say sister, but I think Anne Barton was his wife. Who was not a director. John Barton was also an academic. He was an academic and director, which is what made him such an unusual figure. But Anne Barton... Did, taught Shakespeare at Oxford then and I, I studied Shakespeare with her oh. and was, you know, again, I think, I'm trying to think, I directed a production of Macbeth. Um, I was in a production of The Winter's Tale oh. at the Oxford Playhouse, which then went to the Bloomsbury Theatre in London because oh. there was this kind of interesting, and I was in a production of King Lear playing Gloucester, uh, which went to the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, we did that production in, in Edinburgh. Surrounded by comedy and burlesque. Yeah. Uh, I was in the Oxford Review also at Edinburgh, which we shared with oh. the Cambridge Footlights. So I did a lot of theatre there. Yeah. But, 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 you know, Shakespeare remained and, and continues to be, you know, uh, you know, an object of fascination for me. And I mean, I teach... Um, I mean, yeah, I, won't, I won't list productions that I've been mm. involved in. That would be a bit pretentious. But I, I've done a lot of Shakespeare... Not as much as I would like, nowhere near as much as I would like. Mm. 
over the years professionally and you know as a student and then professionally and I, I the last two years I've I've had the privilege of teaching Shakespeare t- uh, at WAPA to mm. the students so yeah definitely I have a relationship with Shakespeare very I'm very envious of your relationship with him <laughs> right and um, I got I should actually say that yes. because I was lucky enough to be at Oxford and you know London was just you know an hour on the train mm. so I saw and Stratford actually was like an hour and a half the other way so I, I saw a lot of Shakespeare, you know, mostly mainstream, the Royal Shakespeare yeah. Company Shakespeare, but some fantastic productions with fantastic actors and, you know, as well as experimental Shakespeare on yeah. campus and at the fringe and elsewhere. So, yeah, I, I feel like I've, I've been very lucky in terms of my exposure to Shakespeare, both, you know, as a teacher and as a theatre goer and as an actor and, and academically as well. What comes to you when... I mentioned the Perth Theatre Company. Regret that it's gone. Mm. Huge admiration for Mel Cantwell, who succeeded Alan Beecher as artistic director uh, and took the company into the 21st century, I think, in some ways. I mean, that's, I don't mean that to be a judgment on what Alan, Alan was also, you know, a very, very talented director, gifted director with a vision for the company. But Mel, you know, as a, as a younger director, as a woman, mm. uh, and as someone with, you know, quite a unique vision I think about about theatre and I think a really fine director too you know took that company in new directions but they had lost the playhouse they lost their home base they were increasingly starved of funding and you know I think she you know accomplished an enormous amount you know in the face of very very difficult obstacles and I think it's a shame the company went because I think Perth needs another you know, major theatre company or yeah. at least small to medium company, it needs a Malthouse or a Belvoir Street yeah. to balance Black Swan. Yeah. I think it's a lot to ask Black Swan to do both. To do every, yeah. To do everything. And then there to be, you know, as I say, then there's niche companies with niche audiences, which are great companies too. I mean, Yuriakin and, mm. and Viking Gecko. And I feel like I'm missing out another theatre company, but I can't quite think what it is in the small to medium I mean, deck chair's gone now, but but I feel like they speak to very specific audiences and, and demographics, and uh, well, you have also um, spare puppets. Of spare course, parts. that's the one I'm missing out spare on. Spare parts, which is also you know a, a specialised company. Yeah. Whether we're talking about Aboriginal theatre, whatever that phrase means, or whether we're talking about young people's theatre in the case of Barking Gecko, or in the case of spare parts, you know, puppetry and animation. Mm. But I feel like with you know, Perth Theatre Company was the potential, yeah, the potential Malthouse or Belvoir mm. Street or I guess maybe Love White in, I'm less familiar with the Brisbane scene, but yeah. but I feel like it's important to have another company in terms of, that has a slightly different angle, but in terms of, you know, perhaps slightly more experimental work or more, um, you know, work that's exploring form, which is not to say Black Swan isn't doing that, but I think it's... I think it would be better if it didn't have a monopoly on, on the yeah. main stage, which, you know, by default, it does with the loss of Perth. So that's my feeling around that. Uh, I, I feel like we need... I'm hopeful that mm. uh, another company will receive some of the resources that previously went to Perth Theatre Company and Deck Chair and Thin Ice, that was Matt Lutton's, you yeah. know, short-lived avant-garde experimental theatre company. And since then, those resources have kind of been distributed through various funding yeah. you know, alternatives for independent projects, really. Last Great Hunt, you know, yes. is yeah. now 
you know, a company of, you know, an independent company yeah. that, that's emerged from the independent scene and, you know, is now on, you know, annual funding. Mm. So that's great. And I mean, maybe they will become the next Perth Theatre Company. Or oh, I, yeah. don't, I don't know. Yeah, that's what comes to mind in terms of in terms of Perth Theatre. I mean, I, mean, I certainly, you know, I, I worked with Mel as a director mm. and, and, you know, I, I enjoy, I mean, firstly, I did, you know, she cast me in Blackbird, which was an amazing play, that mm. David Harrow play, um, harrowing play, which was in the studio underground. And I, I thought, you know, I mean, I was inside it, but it felt like a, an important production of an important play. And and then she gave me the opportunity to remount Wish, which I'd done yeah. as a Blue Room show, as a Perth Theatre Company co-production with my company, Last Scene Imagining. Uh, not Last Scene Imagining, was another company I had, the <laughs> Sophia Hall in Perth. It, uh, that this was with um, Night Train, which was the, the second kind of independent company I had in Perth. So yeah, Mel gave me and and many others. I mean, Zoe Pepper had that opportunity, yeah. and uh, Last Great Hunt had that opportunity. You know, to to kind of collaborate her vision of, of kind of a local company, you know, a, a small to medium company collaborating with independents. I think was was a really you know valuable exercise. I find it on my take. I find it really weird. The ending was quite sad about from from what from my collective memory, which is a bit scattered, but um, about sponsorship is quite sad. How James Berlin had a show ready to go, but that got canned, mm. and I got really really angry because it, it had from from what I knew, I, I I believe it had all its funding ready and was ready to go, but I was really upset how it got pulled along with Mice of Men, mm. which had with um, it was it was going to star with Jai Courtney, yeah. Yeah. And that whole sort of funding, and but you know, it's the funniest. Well, one of the saddest things. Well, most I'll say interesting things that I got to see in that, and I'll keep going back to the two week um, improvisational workshop we had. Mm-hmm. Was we're at the studio underground, and you remember when we came in, so you got the main space. But then when you looked outside by the lift, you saw this board of the Perth Theatre Company. Mm. And I thought it was quite a sad image because yeah. it was plastered on the grey wall and I, by the mops and the brooms. And <laughs> I noticed it also as a piece of history. Incidentally, I don't know if your listeners can hear my Mr. Wister Whippy van <laughs> is passing <laughs> in the neighbourhood. Always happens on a Sunday. We could nip out for an ice cream, but perhaps not. Yeah, I saw that too and I also felt sad about that. I think it's always... Sad when a company folds. I think yeah. it's as simple as that. It's, you know, just that, again, I come back to this notion of the kind of biodiversity or cultural diversity and, you know, which isn't just about, uh, you know, multiculturalism. It's not just about culture or race or language. I mean, of course it is, but it's also actually just about diversity of, of companies, of venues. I'm always sad when a venue closes. Mm. I'd rather see things change, adapt and change, rather than things die. Which is not to say that, you know, that the Mel herself as an artist and other artists who worked with that company go on to do other work. So, you know, it's not just an ending. It's a, it's a process of transition and transformation. How did you meet the artistic director of Force Majeure, Daniel Mikic? Well, Dank and I, I, I call her Dank, Danielle and I, we collaborated together I mean Perth is a what I love about Perth is that it is because it is a smaller scene there's a crossover between you know particularly the independent scene theatre dance mm. music you know contemporary performance visual art 
which I really love, actually, that sense of the community. I mean, I've got to work in with dancers. I, you know, I got to do this workshop with Andrew Morrish yeah. through Strut, which is, you know, the, the independent dance organisation here, the, the National Centre for Contemporary Dance. And so, Dank, I'm trying to remember how we first met. My wife, Jess Ipkin-Dance, who was a musician and visual artist, is a musician and visual artist, collaborated, was working with Dank on a piece of hers. And I asked Dank to work with me, Danielle, to work with me as a co-performer on a... I was, again, so Chris Bendel, who was then artistic director of Deck Chair when it still existed, yeah. who had Victoria Hall in Fremantle, and which was, you know, I live in Hamilton Hill, so was not far away. I had, you know, been involved in a couple of plays there and he offered me the venue for, it was empty for a week and he said, you can basically have it for a week and do whatever you like. <laughs> so I, together with Jess, my, my then wife and, and Danielle and Paul Mercurio, lighting designer, we spent five days creating, rehearsing and then two nights performing a show called Orpheus and Eurydice, oh. which was used poetry from, you know, translations from Virgil, Ovid, mm. Milos, the Polish poet, uh, and Rilke, to tell the story of the myth of Orpheus mm. and Eurydice. And Jess played her own music. And Jess and I had actually worked together on a version of this more like a recital back in Melbourne. Uh, and I got Dank involved because I just felt like, oh, I, I worked, I was the actor and kind of director, I guess, mm. that I wanted to work with a dancer. Mm. So it was actually the idea that Dank would be Eurydice, would be a, a, a dancer, a mover, yeah. uh, but wouldn't speak. And that she would become, I don't know if you or your listeners are that familiar with the myth, but after Orpheus fails to bring Eurydice back from the underworld, mm. he is later torn apart by the Bacchae because he won't succumb to their advances, the women. Yeah. He plays, he continues to play his lyre and sing and enchants trees and animals, but he remains faithful to Eurydice and won't take another lover. Mm. And the Bacchae who want him uh, end up tearing him apart. So, so Danielle, Eurydice kind of came back as a back eye and tore me apart <laughs> uh, at the kind of climax of the show, which we did through kind of, you know, basically movement and contact yeah, yeah. improvisation. And, and, you know, I like working as a physical actor and mm. performer as well. I, I wouldn't call myself a dancer. So that we worked together on that. And after that performance, so we only performed it twice. We mm. rehearsed, created it in five days, performed it twice, but felt like we had a common, you know, common interest and a common language as makers and performers. And so when I decided that I wanted to do Wish to adapt the Peter Goldsworthy mm. novel, which is about a, you know, the son of deaf parents who speaks both ling English and sign language and who teaches sign to a gorilla mm. and then uh, fall, they fall in love and have a sexual relationship, yeah. that I wanted Dank to play Wish, the gorilla. Yeah. And, t you know, that, we, that we, would, we would kind of pursue this use of dance and movement in performance that we kind of found in another story. So that was the next project we worked on together. And then I think, I, yeah, then I invited Dank to work with me again on another Night Train production uh, called Masks, which was a 
a Perth Fringe show at Pika, which uh, was, again, it was the two of us performing. Yeah. Uh, and her her husband, Ashley DePraiser, had also worked with me. He's a, he's a graphic artist, visual mm. designer, projectionist, photographer. So he worked on that production in terms of uh, the visuals, projections and stuff. So, I mean, they were, by this stage, they were, you know, they were friends. Yeah. They're close friends and, and, and collaborators. And they still are, even though they've moved to Sydney. And Dank invited me to work with her on, I think, two of her projects as a, a dance projects uh, or dance theatre projects, probably she would call them, mm. uh, as a dramaturg. So, mm. yeah, so that's, you know, that's how we have worked and, you know, hopefully we'll continue to work together as collaborators and friends. What are the potential hazards of adapting a novel for the stage? What have you learned? Well, the potential hazards are the same as, you know, any work of theatre and performance, <laughs> firstly, of which there are plenty. I mean, I actually think that adaptation... Adaptation is something that I've done for a long time for one reason or another. It probably goes back to my interest in literature and my training even being more, you know, as an academic than mm. as, a, as a performer. So, and I, I was part of, when I came back to Australia after Oxford, I co-founded a, a company called Whistling in the Theatre in Melbourne in the 1980s. And we were basically a bunch of kind of theatre nerds. We were all actors, but most of us had also been at university. Some came from VCA mm. and some came from Melbourne Uni and some came from both Melbourne Uni and VCA. Mm. So, and we, for about five years, we made and performed work with guest, sometimes guest writers and directors and sometimes guest actors, but basically it was an ensemble. And that was a formative experience for me in terms of, you know, what I would call a real theatre company, which is an ensemble of artists, mm. of which, you know, I don't think there are many. <laughs> to me, a theatre company, you know, is like an orchestra or a dance company. It's, it should be. Mm. We should expect it to be an ensemble of, you know, of artists and particularly performers. And that's something else I could talk about at great length. Mm. But the other thing that came out of that experience was we did a lot of adaptations. And I guess that's because we were readers, you know. We were, you know, ex-university students, a lot of us. But, you know, we, we wanted to create our own work and have a sense of ownership over our work. So we kind of, yeah, it wasn't a conscious program, but we that became our identity as a company probably more than anything else. Um, and it was a time when adaptation was just starting, I think, to have a kind of renaissance in, you know, around the world, probably. Mm. Peter Brook's production of the Mahabharata mm. had come to the Adelaide Festival and the Perth Festival in 1980, maybe 85, 86, I think. I saw it. Mm. And in fact, we took a production to that Adelaide Festival, an adaptation of an H.G. Wells short story, The Country mm. of the Blind, which I adapted and directed with the group. And we also did a kids show, an adaptation of T.H. White's The Sword in the Stone. Ah. They were just books and stories that we liked okay. and we saw theatrical potential in them. And I think it was something about feeling that sense of ownership. So they weren't, they weren't quite, it wasn't devised theatre in the sense that, you know, we think of devised theatre being coming out of improvisation. And the material wasn't directly generated by the cast, but, but it was via, you know, an other source material. Uh, and we went on to do many adaptations. We did an adaptation of The Thousand and One Nights, actually. A large-scale adaptation. Not quite mm. as large as the Mahabharata, but it went for about six hours, I think. With right. two, it was over three nights, and then we did the whole thing on weekends with right. meal breaks. Yeah. Uh, at Theatreworks, actually, in, in Australia, in, in, in Melbourne. 
Oh, wait a minute. No, we didn't do it at Theatre West. We did it at, at the old Anthill Theatre at Napier Street. I was then involved, I then started working at Theatre Works as a dramaturg with Robert Draffin, who was a director, who had directed that production, and we did a large-scale adaptation of Dostoevsky's The Idiot, which was also, you know, probably three or four hours long with meal yeah. breaks. So I kind of, yeah, it just, I, I fell into this relationship with adaptation. And when yeah. I moved to Perth, Sophia Hall and I, she was also an actor and theatre maker, or is an actor and theatre maker, now she's in, in Brisbane, we started up a company called Last Scene Imagining, and mm. we, we, I continued this this interest in adaptation. More contemporary literature. We did an adaptation of Bernard Schlink's The Reader before the movie came out. Uh, we did an adaptation of a, a novella called Cock by Will Self, um, which I directed and so performed in as a solo show. Mm. We also did plays. We did we did you know existing plays. We did a production of Molly Sweeney by Brian Friel and a production of The Changeling, Middleton's Changeling, mm. contemporary Shakespeare. And we did a big production called Home, which was about refugees and people who work with them. This mm. is back in, uh, which was a Perth Festival production back in 2007, I think it finally went on. The Perth Festival, I think that's right, 2007, possibly 2008. Uh which was a kind of adaptation because it was based on interviews. It was a bit like the Laramie Project. Yeah. So it was more like a devised work. It was based on interviews that the actors did with refugees, security guards, lawyers, yeah. doctors, whatever, people who worked in immigration. But I feel like adaptation for me became central to how I relate to making theatre. And in fact... I guess this notion of transforming something into something else. Mm. And actually, I feel that, um, you know, even if I'm directing an existing play, I'm kind of adapting it. I'm adapting something that's on the page to something that's, you know, involves actors and space and light and potentially sound and an audience Mm. and other collaborators. So... To try and answer your question about the hazards, they are the same to me as the hazards of all theatre making because mm. I, I think actually for me all theatre making is adaptation. Mm. Controversial thing to say, um, especially among writers who playwrights mm. who sometimes feel a bit threatened by the, the adaptation industry as it's become. You know, No doubt, I mean, adaptation has become a bit of a, a buzzword in the last sort of 10 years and, you know, people talk about auteur directors like Simon Stone doing, you know, adaptations of things and, you know, I think there's room for everything. I think all all good theatre involves an element of adaptation. I mean, so the hazards obviously are, is the material theatrical? Mm. In the case of a play, probably yes, especially if it's a classic. Mm. Possibly not if it's a contemporary play. There might be built-in problems with the play itself. And then obviously there are hazards in, you know, are the other collaborators, you know, do they have a theatrical vision? The director, the performers, the designers, you know, the so-called creatives. It's a word I don't like because I think actors should be included in that term. So I guess, you know, the hazards are making it alive and three-dimensional and, and you know, performative. Whether it's a book or a story or an existing theatrical text and being able to be faithful without being literal which I think applies again whether I'm directing an Ibsen play or whether I'm you know adapting a H.G. Wells short story it's about 
or whether I'm improvising. You know, mm. the work we've, you and I have been doing with Andrew in, in this workshop. You know, we, Andrew and I invited everyone to bring a text because we wanted to look at the relationship between text and improvisation. And we wanted to look at the relationship between text and movement and between physical and verbal improvisation yeah. and between text and score. And so I think there is a danger in being too literal, in being too faithful, actually, or trying to imitate or copy the source material. I think the challenge is continuing to be faithful to emotionally and imaginatively faithful to the source while being cre imaginatively creative mm. and transformative in order to make a new work from it. Yeah. Now, th this production really, really affected me because there was just a wonderful cast in this production. And I was very fortunate to be taught by one of these, Damien Lockwood, mm -hmm. who's in the production. Are there any special memories or lessons you learned from Laughter on the 23rd Floor? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are special lessons I've learned from, from everything I've done. Laughter on the 23rd Floor was, was a lesson in technical precision because it, it's, it's a very particular kind of... I mean, Neil Simon's work, it's a comedy. Mm. It's a very tightly scripted comedy. It's a particular kind of... American, and I would say even more specifically New York, yeah. Broadway writing. It's very period specific. So there were, as a performer, there were challenges and lessons to be learnt in terms of accents, because, mm. you know, the decision was made to use those accents in the service of the humour and the genre. I'm not saying you can't do the play without the accents, but certainly the play was, the production was served, mm. hopefully. But that meant, you know, certainly, you know, I wanted to be as accurate as possible in terms yeah. of time and place, not just generic American, but that kind of New York. And in my case, it was New York, New York, a New York Jewish accent that Milt had. And, you know, precision in terms of timing. I mean, it's like a piece of music. Yeah. Pace and crispness and audibility. And, you know, it's really like playing tightly orchestrated jazz, like playing Glenn Miller or, mm. or um, Duke Ellington. And so I learnt a lot from, from, from that technical exercise. And the production itself was, you know, it was on a big proscenium arch stage yes. uh, at the Heath Ledger. So there was, a, there was a necessary scale to the performances and a necessary kind of projection and front-onness yeah. to the performances. How do you communicate something that is to a contemporary audience in Perth, in that theatre that is very much a product of its time. And in fact, the play is a, is a history play unto itself because yes. it's, it's about his time writing, as a, as a comedy writer, writing radio comedy in the 19... Was it 50s or 60s? During I the McCarthy 50s. era. Yeah, it's yeah. during the McCarthy era because that's referenced frequently in the play. I think yeah. it's in the 50s. And the production accentuated that, you know, because of its, its style, which was great. So I learned a lot from that. I mean... You know, and I learned a lot, learned a lot from working with, with the other actors. I mean, you know, someone like, you know, Damon Lockwood is, a, is an incredibly skilled comic actor in, mm. you know, many of the things we're talking about. Uh, and, you know, and working with Peter Rosethorn, who, who is a, you know, a comic genius from actually, you know, I, I, I knew back from my days in Melbourne as a fringe Melbourne comedian fringe and then stand up and then TV. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, he comes from that Melbourne comedy scene. 
Pete. And but you know, he brought a whole other, you know, I mean, much larger than life performance style, and 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 actually much more freewheeling and unpredictable in a way, which was appropriate to the character he was playing, um, who was based on Sid Caesar. Yes. You know, uh, so he was the kind of the central figure around which we all danced. So you know, working tightly around a central figure who who's a lot more anarchic and unpredictable yeah. was really exciting. You know, I really enjoyed, you know, bringing a lot of physical comedy into that. And I, I, I kind of was lucky with that role. I got to do a lot of physical comedy and sight gags. Yeah, I mean, I had a great time doing that show. And it, it, it's, those shows are like a gift to, to an actor yeah. because, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily a play that I would choose to direct or, you know, it's very much in those sort of shows. I'm a gun for hire. Mm. I you know I'm hired because I have some skills in comedy and in performance, and you know that was a great opportunity for me to you know I hadn't actually done a lot of comedy before that, not in that sort of narrowly defined yeah. sense, or not not you know not not what is narrowly defined as comedy. Mm. I don't really know how I describe what I normally do, but I mean probably more casting character roles yeah. that might not necessarily be comedy roles or plays, but. Um, you know, I love doing it and it's, it's very immediate. I mean, it, you have to deliver part of your job. If the play is going to work is to make people laugh. Mm. And so you have to be having a great time. I mean, I think you have to be having a great time on stage, no matter what you're doing actually. But in, in comedy, it's much more demanding in that way. Technically. I can't remember who it was. You said that dying is easy, but comedy is hard. Oh God. There are so many. Um, it's famous, famous. Like, um, yeah. apparently Edmund King. Right. One of the first. I think, I think it's attributed to Edmund King on his deathbed. Right. Apparently, and is that, uh, is that, yeah. that yeah, dying is easy comedy. Stuff. But then you hear it like from you know the. I want to say Edmund King. Right. That's, that yeah. sounds right. But yeah, I mean, there's there's an element of truth in that. So yeah, I mean, I, I I had a great time doing that. Second last question: What is a quality that an actor should aim for? A quality that an actor should aim for. I want to say. The first word that popped into my mind was truthfulness, but yeah. I have some issues with that word because being truthful can sound a bit like pretending to be truthful without being true or, uh, you know, honest, maybe honesty is a better word than truthfulness. I think honesty. Yeah. In fact, I prefer honesty. Of course you're pretending. Well, not necessarily, but if you're, if you're performing in a, you know, piece of dramatic fiction, which is not always the case, mm. but even if you're, even if you're playing yourself on stage or there is an element of representation involved so there's something something around this notion of honesty presence mm -hmm. not just in presence in the sense of stage charisma presence in the sense of being there mm. you know actually being there but i mean these are qualities in life so i think there's a there's an ethics to acting which mm -hmm. is similar to the ethics of living which is about being there about being honest about actually enjoying yourself you know finding your pleasure um, which is something Andrew and I have in common we're both quite obsessed with this idea yeah. of and actually so is Godier who I learned from but I mean for me it's always been the case of finding your pleasure uh, in order to share it with the other performers and with the audience so I feel like that also and I, I actually think that's an ethical task in in life as well not at the expense of everything else but finding pleasure I think you know happiness is a happiness is a is a a quality to use your word 
means it doesn't just fall from the sky. So I think these notions of honesty, presence, pleasure, yeah, are, are really, really important qualities. And, you know, of course, there are physical and technical qualities about physical technique, vocal technique. Mm. And, you know, there are emotional and intellectual qualities about that are they're either gifts or they're things that you can work on and, and training. I mean, that's the whole point of training. So, of course, those things are also very important. But I think underlying them are the, these deeper notions, which, which I think of as being kind of ethical and ontological, <laughs> to use a you know, slightly pretentious word, about being, about being truthful, being present, being honest, I should say, and having pleasure or finding pleasure or being open to pleasure. Uh, and sharing pleasure. Well, Humphrey, I have to say, time is up. Now, but, but before we go, my very last question, and this is sort of the signature of the podcast series. Actually, the podcast series is based around this question. So, Humphrey, I'm not sure if you're aware, but hopefully in the year 2027, we will meet again in this podcast form. I'd like to revisit you and recap. Um, hopefully we meet before then. But it would be very interesting if we did not meet for 10 years somehow. Unlikely in Perth. Very unlikely. <laughs> so Humphrey, in the year 2027, when we meet again, hmm. what would you like to plug on the podcast? Plug as in yeah, promote like, or yeah, advocate promote, for? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know how things will have changed then. So in a way, I suppose... I would be plugging or promoting the very things that I've been plugging and promoting now because mm. I think they'll always need plugging and promoting. <laughs> so, you know, I think my, you know, my expanded notion of notions of adaptation, of mm. collaboration, of ensemble, uh, notions of diver, you know, diversity mm. of companies, venues in performance, continuing to question why we're here, yeah. and those qualities that I mentioned about performance of honesty, presence and pleasure, mm. I think I'll probably be, be plugging all those things till the day I die. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Humphrey. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, Ryan.